0: When people think of church discipline, most people say that the reason to do it is to restore the person to fellowship. But is that the only reason God gives in his word for church discipline? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Seitz. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. Most teaching that I've seen on church discipline always puts a a focus on restoration, as if The only way that church discipline can be successful is if the person's restored, which really sets an expectation that the person will be restored. And, you know, why does the way that leads to destruction, we shouldn't have this aspect, this attitude that it will always end in restoration. And so there's multiple reasons in Scripture why you should do church discipline. But I think it fundamentally comes down to one question, which is when the church does discipline, is it to serve God or is it to serve man?
1: I mean and, and the way to answer that question is just start with some really basic premises and presuppositions. When you ask a question that has the structure of when the church does fill in the blank, is it to serve God or is it to serve man? And and the your answer to that question is really going to depend on what you think the purpose of the church is. Period. You know, ignore discipline for a moment. Just think what's the purpose of the church on earth? Is it to serve God or is it to serve man? And I think it's pretty clear from Scripture. We're going to spend the, the rest of this podcast arguing that it's really to serve God. But we're going to have to push back against a lot of the ways that we've been raised, a lot of the ways that we think about the church, that we think that the church is really here for me. It's about me. And that's not to say that there's not benefits for me to go to church. Obviously, there are. God says there's there's so many benefits. but But when you want to say, what's the primary reason— what is the reason that the church does anything? Well, the reason the church is supposed to do anything is to bring glory to God. So when the church sings music, is it doing it for man? Is it doing it for God? It's pretty obvious what the, the modern evangelical church thinks, but it's, that's not consistent with Scripture. And then you say, well, what's, what's the purpose of discipline when the church is doing it? Is, it? is it to bring God glory? Is it to honor him? Or is it about man?
0: I mean, when you say that, I mean, it's really important to recognize how closely linked together loving God and loving man is. Because the reality is that when we do it to serve God, that is how you serve man. But if you do it to serve man, that is not how you do it to serve God. That the two do not work in reverse. If we do it saying we're bringing glory to God by obeying his commandments, well, that's how you love your neighbors, by obeying his commandments. When you're doing it focused on what man wants, you end up being in violation of God's commandments. So it's really important to recognize that it is about loving your neighbor. It is about loving the other people in the church. But you do that by loving God, not by starting with man, but by starting with God.
2: This is why Jesus Christ says the greatest commandment is love the Lord, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And there's this false idea that somehow the Ten Commandments are split into these two categories. No, it is that you love God, and because you love God, you deal with murder, and that ends up—you end up loving man because you love God. But it's not this idea that these things—when you get this wrong idea, you destroy justice. You destroy all these concepts, and so because of that— the church has this improper view of discipline and this view of what it, like you said, what does it accomplish and why are we doing it?
0: And when you look, right, for this is the love of God to keep his commandments, right, that's what it says in First John. But in Romans 13, it says this is the sum of every commandment, whether it's do not murder, do not commit adultery, whatever it is, whatever commandment they are is summed up as love your neighbors, yourself. So we love God by keeping his commandments. And that's how we love our neighbor, Right when we focus on our neighbor we exalt our neighbor and put him in the place of God
1: so it would be it would be absolutely appropriate and i mean even necessary for to say that when we do discipline on somebody who's in the church to that that we hope that they're restored absolutely. i mean that's that's the right attitude to have but but it, what you're saying then is if we make that the focus and the purpose of doing the discipline then you run the risk of of just getting off track with either your means and your methods for discipline because you're really focused on what is it going to take to get this one person back when that's not really about bringing glory to God.
0: And when you think about like most of God's commandments are more case law than they are, you know, giving an exact thing in every single situation. And if you have case laws where you have to use examples and interpolate for a given example of what you should do, Well, if you're interpolating based on loving man, then your response and how you interpolate is going to be a lot different, the conclusion you come to, than if you say this is about loving God, which is the means to love man. Because when you interpolate those case laws, you're going to do it very differently when you're keeping God at the center rather than having man at the center.
3: And just thinking about having God at the center, there's a verse that gets right to that, which is 1 Corinthians 10.31. 1 Corinthians 10.31, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So when you're saying, why, what's the reason for church discipline? Well, if it's something that you do, which it seems like it is, it needs to be done for the glory of God. If
0: eating and drinking is those basic things are done for the glory of God, how much more should the church, when it's doing discipline, be about the glory of God? When you think about discipline, it seems to me that where you need to start with is the church is the body of Christ. And so the church in doing it should be reflecting who God is, reflecting his purpose in the world, reflecting why he established the church. That all these things, God has given us real real uh, examples in scripture of how we are supposed to display who God is to the world around us. And discipline is a really primary way for doing that because when you do discipline, you are very much saying that the church is different than the world.
3: There's a, the verse in Hebrew that talks about that every son that God has, he chastens. Uh, so it, that makes it core to how he is, you know, a father to his people is that he chastens his people. And so, you know, one of the ways that he does that is through the institution of the church, through church discipline.
0: Because I do, yeah, you know, there's a concept in theology that the church, and there's probably, it's not a perfect match. So you have to be careful about taking it too far because the Roman Catholics did take it too far, where the church is the mother and God is the father. And the reality is church doing the discipline, it's doing it under the head as like the mother of the people in there. And so we should expect that the father, God, is going to delegate just like all four of us are fathers and we all delegated to our wives to use the rod. We don't say, well, we always have to use the rod. And so that doesn't isn't separate from the father acting. That's, you know, that is God acting when the church
2: acts. I mean, one of the other issues, too, when you talk about if you take things back to being the focus is on the glory of God, it even starts to affect the way you think of the word discipline. Because, I mean, we did an episode on discipline and talked about how discipline has been, you know, it's something that the modern church and our modern culture hasn't focused on. But we, all, when we think of this one, we always think of, like, a very serious actions when someone has already – they've crossed some line where they're in danger, whereas really discipline begins much earlier than that. Discipline is how you rise up in the morning. Discipline is how you plan your day. It's how you structure things. It's in the way you talk to one another. It's in – you know, I mean, it's – have you ever been at work and you were doing something and you went to talk to someone and you're talking to them for a little bit and they look at you and go, well, I need to get back to work? And you go, oh, me too. And you go back and you get back to work. That is a that is a form of discipline within, and, and no one was in trouble, no one was brought up on anything, but just this other person's words caused an effect on the other person. And so when you put the focus on glorifying God, and you were kind of saying this, if all of our focus is on this, then our words begin to be ordered in a way so that we are disciplining one another through our speech, we're chastising one another, we're, we're rebuking one another, we're encouraging one another, we're exhorting one another, and all those are aspects of discipline and then you and well before you get to the point of where you need to say this actually needs some actual intervention that we all have to stop and say or that one of us or more of us have to stop and say what needs to be done here about this specific sin and and it's just that broad view has really been lost because in the end if you don't think of it in that way you're you're going to miss out on the depth of it.
0: And yeah, I think that the term church chastisement is probably a better term than church discipline, but church discipline is the term that's used all the time, but it really subtracts off a whole set of discipline that is about making disciples versus chastisement is a very narrow thing that you do to make disciples. But right. even there, it's about making disciples. So the first reason that I think, you know, when you think about it, and there's no particular order to these reasons, but— You know, one of the first reasons that you do discipline is it's intended to create fear in the church. We forget, you know, I think Christians have a tendency to forget that the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. Even as you say, there's no
2: order to these.
0: (laughs) It is the beginning. (laughs) But, okay, and and the last one I was very deliberate about, too. And all the middle ones. Anyway, okay, so let, let me retract my previous statement and say, no, there is an order to these. And I wanted to start with fear. Um, and the purpose of a purpose of discipline is not just for the person that's being disciplined or being chastised, but the rest of the church. Because if you never do anything, people forget who God is, they forget God is a God whose wrath is against sin who punishes sin, who pours out judgment. When you read the Old Testament, like half the Old Testament is, Israel, you won't keep my laws, so I'm going to punish you. Now, sometimes it's Egypt, sometimes, I mean, it's frequently Judah, but it's, here's my commandments. You don't do them. You receive chastisement. And then the church age comes. Now the church should be, Jesus loves you, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And they lose the idea of fear. And most of our churches, I think, have largely lost the idea of fear. And the fastest way to get fear into a congregation is to do discipline justly. You don't just do it for the sake of doing it, but chastise that's done justly. It really creates fear in the
2: church. And if you look at, like, if you look in the New Testament in Acts, one of the very first things that happens after Pentecost, I mean, they're, they're, the Spirit, Holy Spirit comes upon them. They're brought together. They're in, the fe- in, you know, they're in fellowship together. And it's not very long until you get to Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty quick. It's, it's still in that point where everything's in common in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, it's, so this is really early in the church. And God kills two people in the church before the church to establish fear. I mean, if there would have been a time where you'd have said there'd be this golden age period when the Holy Spirit first pours down. And so you even see that God is willing in the beginning of the church, in the very beginning of it, to do something that, I mean, church discipline does not involve putting anyone to death. (laughs) I mean, you know what I mean? And so, but God said, I'm going to do this before the church in this very early stage. And we just, we forget that. We forget that the same God who sent his son to die and poured out all these things, he said this was good for the church. He ordained this.
0: And when he does that, fear falls upon Jerusalem and 3,000 people are saved. And we forget that too, is that the fear is what actually causes people to see who God is and repent and believe. Because if you don't have fear of God, you have no need for a savior. And so when the church evangelizes without any idea of fear, guess what? You have rejected the idea of Jesus Christ as the Savior, because save you from what? If there's no wrath of God, there's no Savior. And so, you know, you see it with Ananias and Sapphira, and you see it like in a verse in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. So, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and had not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. When we read that and you look at the context of it, it's not specifically talking about fear there. But what I see here is what frequently happens in the church when somebody sins. Say a young girl gets pregnant out of wedlock in the church. At first the church goes, this is terrible. Then the girl cries in front of the church. And then the church goes, Isn't it wonderful that God saves? And what they're doing there is instead of going, This is the hand of God in judgment, not the baby of the judgment, but the 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 um,
1: exposure of sin. The
0: exposure of sin is judged. that's supposed to cause people to fear that you had a fornicator among you because God says in his word that no fornicator will inherit the kingdom of God. And so all of a sudden the sin's exposed and people are well, you've shed a few tears, so oh Jesus Christ forgives you. And that's what was happening in the church at Corinth, is that they see this man, he's having his father's wife, which, is, which according to the Gentiles was evil, and yet they're instead of going, this is horrible that we have this in the midst of the body of Christ, they're, they're puffed up. They're going, look at what's happening, which the only way I can see them being puffed up is they're rejoicing and saying, oh, God forgives, God forgives, instead of going, God is still the God of wrath,
1: and he changes.
0: He changes people he receives.
1: Or... Another way that they're puffed up is that they're, hey, look at what we can tolerate. right? I mean, it's a version of, hey, there's, there's diversity here. We have many different types of, of sexual tastes that are in this church. And it's no different than, than where we are with churches now that are puffed up over the fact that they're inclusive in these kinds of ways about things that are perversions. We've talked about this in a number of episodes, that one of the problems is
2: the church has a wrong view of the relationship between justice and mercy. And that they think that because they desire mercy, they think that some that mercy is the thing that they are supposed to go and do mercy. And Scripture does not say that. What Scripture says is do justly and love mercy. And when you see Jesus talking to the Pharisees at one point in the New Testament where he tells them you have omitted Some of the matter weightier matters of the law One of the things he mentions in there Is mercy Is that mercy is built into the law Mercy is already built into the law And so it's not something that You have to go and do It is something that is done By you obeying God It is something that God does Through your obedience to him And so because we have this This messed up view of mercy We end up going What we have to do is show mercy And our idea of mercy is that No one is that sin isn't there is no cost for sin there is nothing that happens for sin there is nothing that must be done that that even what christ did on the cross that it doesn't work itself out in a way that god doesn't do that work that somehow we just go what we do is we just ignore it and overlook it and pretend that it didn't happen and that is not, that is, there's nowhere in Scripture where we're commanded to do that. And functionally, that's treating the body as if it's not the body of
0: Christ, that it's not Christ that's supposed to be working through his people in a certain way. It's so oh God will do that rather than his body doing it. Well, the things that God does, he frequently does, and it's not that he's constrained by doing things through the church, but he chooses to do it through his body. And so we should recognize that we have a responsibility being the body of Christ. And so when we talk about, like you were talking about, how you know you just show mercy, we forget what God's justice looks like. And a good example of this is Miriam. So Miriam and Aaron decide that they should be the people that, that you know, God speaks to them as much as he does through their brother Moses. And so they're kind of going, God, you know, we're as much of prophets as you are. And God goes, no, you're not. And and then he doesn't just... And then Miriam and Aaron repent. But they don't just go, okay... Or God doesn't just go, okay, they repent. He actually says something very different in Numbers 12, 10 through 14. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. Then Aaron turned towards Miriam, and there she was, a leper. So Aaron said to Moses, Oh my Lord... Please do not lay this sin on us, in which we have done foolishly, and in which we have sinned. Please do not let her be as one dead, whose flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, Please heal her, O God, I pray. Then the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut out of the camp seven days, and afterward she may be received again. And so, so many churches go, we don't really, we They cried. It's okay. They've cried. It's, it's Forget the sin. Forget dealing with the sin. But with Miriam, they're crying. Aaron's going, stop, stop, please, Lord. Moses, please intervene. And God goes, there needs to be punishment because otherwise people won't fear. Otherwise, they still rise up later in Numbers and go, we're prophets just like Moses. But yet, you know, God says there has to really be punishment because fear is central to that. And when you just say you can ignore sin without doing punishment— Because they cried, because they said they repented, you end up not causing fear to fall upon the congregation. Instead, what you end up doing is encouraging the congregation to sin. Because there's plenty of people in the congregation that will watch that act and go, hey, if I get caught doing that, guess what will happen? I'll have to cry. The girl who has the child out of wedlock, her friend goes, I like laying with my boyfriend. And so I'll keep doing it because worst thing I'll have to cry in front of the church. Not a big deal. And so when the church fails to do discipline and fail to actually say we need to do something about this because of the holy name of God. You end up really hating the people in the church because you're not promoting the fear that should come on that that they fell short and that you could fall short.
2: I mean one of the things it does is it ignores the picture in scripture is that sin is a form of sin is like leaven and what sin does is it spreads and so there is a part of it where i mean it's cuz there are people they don't i don't think they connect the the dots between the fear of god and it and it deal and it being a something that that deals with that spreading effect of leaven and so when you when they see sin like you're talking about they see sin and they go well, if we forgive the sin, that will deal with the sin. But in the end, scripture is like, no sin is like leaven. If you leave the sin going on in the midst, if you leave the sin there, if you don't show, I mean, it's like whenever you have and you have a sin and sickness in your body, there's times where what you do is you cut that sickness out. There are times where you go, this is something that must be cut out. You don't leave it there. You don't have an infection and you go, well, should we, should we, you know, should we get the pus out? Should we drain it? No, no, just just leave it alone. Leave it there. Let the rest. I mean, we understand these things. But when it's the body of Christ, when it's the body where we see sin, we do these things, we act as if we should have this completely different response. And there's just this denial. And everybody,
0: they see, they see mold on their bread. They pinch it off and throw the mold away, right? Right. Because then you can save the rest of the loaf. But if you just let the mold there and give it another day, and all of a sudden the loaf is covered with mold. Right. And everybody knows this. This isn't like rocket science. Everybody knows that if you just see a spot of mold and you pull it off the bread, most of the bread's still good. But if you let it stay, it's not going to be good for long.
1: Let me ask you a question, then, because we started this uh, t- this conversation off with the premise that church discipline is about bringing glory to God. Are we getting af- away from that with the way we've discussed it here by saying, oh, you know what you really need to do is you really need to do church discipline for the benefit of everybody else in the church? Is that what we're saying?
0: No, we're saying that that. The God is glorified by people seeing him for who he is. I mean, your question is very good, by the way, because it's easy for people to misinterpret what we're saying. What, I, what we're saying in this is that God is glorified by people seeing God who he is. And God is a God to be feared. And when we cover it up to make it seem like God doesn't need to be feared, we're not bringing glory to God. Now, the way that you can tell that God is receiving glory is that people actually respond in fear. And so you do it because you want people to see who God is.
3: And if you're wondering, you know, is church discipline really about fear? um, There's a verse that directly deals with that, which is 1 Timothy 5. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. And so there you know it's saying that you should rebuke those who are in sin so that the rest of the congregation fears god and fears um fears being under his rebuke and under his displeasure
0: and especially when you think of the elder the elders like the person who's one of the most visible if not the most visible person in the church the elders and so it's like saying specifically if you're an elder it needs to be done too because the most people more people are going to know about his sin than know about other people's sins typically and so by exposing it, and he's been given a position, so to those who much is given, much is expected, and so for that reason, especially for an elder, you do it so that nobody is sitting there going, I'm sure I'm fine, which is what happens in congregations all the time, is people, people deceive themselves about assurance of salvation. That is so common that people are so convinced they're saved, and you talk to them about basic things in Scripture, and they don't, they don't believe them, but yet they're so sure they're saved. And this is a way that you have an elder that somebody's saying, this is a godly man, and then you expose his sin and people go, wait a second, am I as godly as I think I am? I thought this was a godly man and I was following him. Do I even know what it means to be godly? And fear falls on a congregation.
2: I mean, we you know, I think we, we mentioned this episode more than maybe any other one, but I, I mean, just a couple weeks ago, there was someone who came across the Ravi Zacharias episode. And and when they came in, their comments were, they kind of came in, and their first initial comments were just one of shock and going, this can't be true about Ravi. And the answer back was, no, if you look into this, you can see there's a lot of evidence. This isn't, like, made up. And it's like, but the point of this is, Ravi's dead. The point of this is, do you know who God is? And the person ended up responding back going, I am just reeling in shock. I am full, this, you know, this fills me with fear, this you know and when they 're looking' because in the end they 're having the exact same response you 're talking about they 're looking at Ravi Zacharias and they 're saying, "If he can look like that to me, then what does that mean? What does that mean about me? What does that mean about others? If I thought he was holy, what does that mean about me and this is and we just we forget that people react in this way, and in the end, it is good to have to, it is good to go through that it is good to say that every time there 's been church discipline in the church. Fear has fallen on me. And you sit there and you go, that could be me in so many ways. And not just in this obscure there but for the grace of God go I. In like real material ways that you look at yourself and you go, no, I can see the steps that would be necessary. This could be me in real easy ways if I don't. I've
0: taken two steps down this five-step path.
2: Right. And you see it and you go, I need to run back in the other direction. I need to deal with real things. And people just forget that this is how we work.
0: I mean, another, you know, very specific verse, which is Romans 11, that's about fear, is it's talking about Israel. But it applies to, you know, it applies to the church, too. The idea is that God has rejected Israel. And so they're broken off. Like in excommunication, you break something off. And here's what Paul writes, you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. The response is when somebody's excommunicated, when you see somebody broken off, the response is not to go, oh, look at that. They got caught in their sin. That's a good thing. It's, it's, and this is the natural response of people is to go, wait a second, how am I the same? And the Gentiles were looking at the Jews and not seeing this, but we should see this in church discipline. And I think when I've, when I've been involved with church discipline, you usually see this in the congregation. A lot of people fear. And that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing because it's reflecting the character of God.
2: And I think that's one of the – I mean, and when you're saying that people need to see God – what happens is, is when you go into church, it's very easy to see man. It's very easy to look at one another and see our human failings and go, God is like this. And and you think, oh no, I don't think that way. But the answer is, is that's why we want it to be. We want to be comforted. We want to be God, you know, this is, this is Christianity. Our failings are are what God has called us to. And what you're shocked by is when you see these things, when Ananias and Sapphira die, when you see Ravi Zacharias, when you see the sin brought out in front of you, you're reminded, no, God is holy. You're reminded, no, God is not like man. And what we have been called to be is different than what man is. And so there is this part of it where when you're saying that God is glorified by seeing God is you're reminded reminded of the difference between man and God. And it's very easy to begin worshiping man. It's very easy to be focused on man. And that is not what God has called his church to be doing.
0: And, you know, I was even reading Hosea with somebody recently, and they're hearing Hosea, and Hosea is about how God's going to pour out his wrath on Israel. And then we read Amos, and Amos is about how God's going to pour out his wrath on Israel. And we read, yeah, and this is the pattern of a lot of books. And... She was telling me, no, God's good and kind, which is what you hear all over the place. And he is good and kind, which is why he is just and which is why he punishes evil and which is why that he he doesn't just sit back and ignore murderers and adulterers and fornicators. And he does actually pour out his wrath. That is part of his kindness. But the church is so busy teaching that God is love, God is kindness, that they forget the depths of these And it's one of the things that church discipline is to remind people of. God is just, and he is kind, and he is good, and he is merciful. And that's not separate from his justice. That's part and parcel of it. And so when people see God destroying the nation of Israel, we're supposed to look at that and say, this is what God does to a people who call themselves the people of God, but yet don't walk in his ways. And that's the same thing that happens with church discipline is that you're saying this is a person who called himself a child of God. This is a person who you saw pray. This is a person who you saw do all these things in the church. And now all of a sudden he's under church discipline, and you go, this is what God does to people who blaspheme his name.
1: And you think about the, the nature of fear. And, and what we're not supposed to come away from is that the fear is going to fall over the church over what might happen to somebody who commits that particular sin. Now, it's certainly part of it. It's like, oh, okay, God takes this thing seriously. But think about the case that we were talking about where Paul's writing a letter to a church and says, this thing is really terrible. You have a man who has his father's wife. My guess is is there were probably not many, maybe none. Nobody else in that church would have been tempted for that particular sin of sleeping with their stepmother. It's possible there was. But my guess is that's not a huge issue. But the church discipline needs to happen in that church so that they understand who God is and, and that sin is serious and that you can't tolerate sin. You can't be puffed up about sin. And and just practically speaking, I mean, we've seen this happen in cases where we've had to go through church discipline. I remember the one of the first cases I saw where we went through church discipline. The elders brought a matter to the church, and there was there was a lot of emotional turmoil to that because, you know, we don't really react well. When, when we see this, you just... Trust me, from the other
0: side, it was even worse. I'm sure.
1: <laughs> but, but you know, as... The other side wasn't disciplined, by the way. I was an elder. So. As you as you work through that some... I mean, I remember being in a meeting, and, 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 you, and this meeting went through all of those stages of grief where they talk about where it's like denial. No, 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 it can't be that bad. Yeah, it's that bad. Here, there's history here, okay? You know, let's walk through this. Oh, it's really that bad, you know? And so, and then... And then by the time we were done with that meeting, there were people, there were men who were publicly confessing sins that had nothing to do with the sin that was at question with the particular individual. I mean, not even in the same category, not the same severity, but all of a sudden there was this fear that was falling on at least certain members of the church, such that you had these public confessions of faith. And who knows what that moment did to save some of those people from having their own public moment later where they're the object and their sin grows and is fostered and fed enough. All of a sudden here's here's discipline of one person and everybody else said, Oh sin is really serious, isn't it? And God's church takes it really serious, doesn't it?
0: And you have, you know, First Corinthians five and then you have Second Corinthians seven, which is the church's response to his letter in First Corinthians five about being puffed up. And in Second Corinthians seven, Paul's saying, Hey, I'm glad you didn't yeah, you know, sorrow with worldly sorrow, you sorrow with godly sorrow, because you all of a sudden worked to clear your name. You made sure that you weren't sinning in, in ways, and it had nothing to do with sleeping with your stepmother. It was to do with the puffed up that they did. But there's this idea of we need to be a holy people that spread through the church because of Paul writing that letter. And it wasn't anybody about the sexual sin as far as is recorded there.
2: I mean, and in, in kind of going back to what we've been saying all along here is, it's really easy to focus on the – I mean, we're even talking about the big events of church discipline, excommunication, someone being put out for sleeping with their, their father's wife. But what happens and the result of this is when you have fear like this fall – I mean, it's like if you, someone falls off a cliff or there's a cliff suddenly in, a, in an area and people recognize it, the immediate thing isn't to go, oh, there's a cliff. Let's not do anything about it is they put a fence around the cliff. And then they put up signage around it. And they put up, I mean, so there's a part of it where the immediate response of fear falling on people is they begin to change their view of sin and they begin to put safeguards in so this type of thing doesn't keep happening. And so, again, we have this view of church discipline is always this huge thing. And the reason why we have that view is because the church doesn't do much of it and there's a lot of sin in the church. But when the church starts taking sin seriously, it causes a very rapid effect of where people start going well we need to deal with sin when it's small well we need to and so you actually where you know where you want to go back to where I was talking about of your conversation changes because you go we need to talk about sin amongst ourselves differently we need you know I mean and so again, when you hear these things, understand the result of these things is that it changes your culture so that hopefully if you practice these things, you don't get into this state where sin is rampant around you, and you have to be constantly thinking about who are we going to put out of the church this week because that doesn't become the normal state of the church.
0: And, I mean, you know, you look at Philippians two twelve and 13. It should be where we all are, right? I mean, we should be working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And this is something we're supposed to remember, that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, which doesn't mean we don't have joy. It doesn't mean that we don't have peace with God, peace that surpasses understanding. But at the same time, we are supposed to fear. And when you do that, that church discipline, it's a reminder of everybody they are supposed to have an element in their Christian walk of fear that they are in rebellion to God. And that should be a frightening thing, And you look at, again, you look at the Old Testament, and 1 Corinthians 10 says these are examples for for Christians. As you look at all the judgment on Israel, you look at all the judgment on Judah, and we're supposed to look at those things and say these are warnings for us. And when you do church discipline, it brings that Old Testament truth into the New Testament where you go, wait a second, I'm supposed to be afraid that I become like Israel. I'm supposed to be afraid I'm going to become like Judah.
1: I want to apply it slightly differently because— What he's saying there is really talking about corporate bodies, groups of people who are being cut off. And so the lesson is not necessarily just individual, like, oh, I might be cut off. It's, hey, if God did this to an entire nation that was called by his name, what might he do to your church if your church doesn't take things seriously? I mean, God ends churches. We know that's the case. Churches disappear all the time. Some of them just trickle away. Others just blow up and explode. But but if you believe God's behind all things, then God's the one who says, nope, this is not a church anymore. And, and one of the reasons he's going to be doing that, maybe the reason he's going to be doing that, is, hey, this church doesn't actually think about sin like I think about sin.
0: And I do think it's worth mentioning what I find to be the most frightening passage in Scripture. It's the parable of the ten virgins. And the fooler said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. These are people that look... These aren't people that are under church discipline. These are people that look like virgins. And when Christ comes, they're going, we're saved. And Christ is going, no, you don't. You don't have the Holy Spirit. And so when we think of anything that reminds us to make our calling and election sure, that is a blessing. And it's also about seeing God for who he is. Because we all want to think that God has to bring us into heaven. We're such wonderful people. Instead of the level of mercy that God shows to save anybody
2: and i think this leads us into the the next point that we were going to talk about of what church discipline does is that or why why you do church discipline is because god is holy i mean god is god is holy and he is the only one in the in the that is by his nature holy and he has bestowed his nature upon those whom he has called and whom he has given his spirit to and so his people are holy and I mean, this is something that the church has. I mean, it has a real problem with today, the idea that that his people are supposed to be holy, and that you know, and this some of this is tied to a denial of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the world. That you know, the Holy Spirit came into the world to to give us tongues. No, the Holy Spirit came into the world to make God's people holy. Jesus Christ pays for their sins on the cross in the future. And he sends the Holy Spirit in the world to change people, to reprove the world of sin, to rep- you know, of judgment and of righteousness, and to change his people. And that is something that when we forget that, we've, we don't understand the purpose of church discipline. We don't understand one of the things that it does in the world.
0: And God says very clearly, be holy as I'm holy in First Peter. And when we think about that, this is a command to the church because we are the body of Christ and we do reflect the nature And so people are supposed to see God in us. And if we allow impurity in the church, known impurity, right? There is always impurity in the church, or you're flagrantly accepting impurity in the church. That's a lot different. That's telling the world that God is not holy. If you're saying you're a church of God and you accept sin without putting it out, you're basically saying God is not holy and and his characteristic that the, that the cherubim fly around him or the seraphim fly around him saying in Isaiah 6 is, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And yet when the church doesn't want to do discipline, it's saying God isn't really holy.
1: I'll, I'll try and say something controversial, which sitting next to Dan, I don't know if I'm up for it. But, <laughs> but take it this way. Um, it is not a problem. It's not the problem in the church for there to be a pedophile. It's not a problem in the church for there to be liars or thieves or adulterers, you know, because the church is made up of people, people sin. The real problem, the real scandal in the church is when those things come to light and they're not dealt with according to the ways that God says to deal with them. And that's something that even the the outside world looks in and says that's that's where the church really gets judged. You look at all of the scandals that are happening in the SBC. Look at all the scandals that are happening in the Catholic Church. And the scandal that the, the outside world sees is not that terrible things happen, that sins were committed. It's that sins were committed and then covered up. That's why it's giant scandals. It's that this person sinned and then he was relocated to another church without any warning that went with him. Instead of being dealt with in his own church the way that a church is supposed to deal with sin. I mean, you should expect in your church, because your church is made up of people, that you're going to have to deal with sin. Just say, this is what a church has to do and and like charles was saying as you deal with it you know it really helps with the future cases down the road and as you don't deal with it it inflates a kind of cases that you're going to have to deal with it becomes all of a sudden a problem that the is infecting an entire denomination because it wasn't dealt with in some little small senses in local churches.
0: And it's beyond the
1: denomination,
0: too, right? Because the church testifies what's acceptable to the world. The reason that there are the transvestite shows that that are so popular now and so pushed, it's because the church doesn't care about sexual sin in the church. Because if it was setting a standard that was much higher, the world doesn't meet that standard, but it follows that standard. Because the church is saying, God is not holy— then why shouldn't you want to be a homosexual if you want to be? Why shouldn't you be a transvestite if you want to be? What restriction is there to that if God is not holy? Then you should just seek pleasure however you can find it. But God is holy, but when the church tells the world God is not holy, then you you see the decay in our culture, and it comes from that. And people just don't look and say, wait a second, if the church doesn't treat God holy, why will anybody else fear, fear God?
1: And part of the reason this is so difficult to deal with is, is, I mean, Charles was mentioning it earlier, you get cases where you think, oh, if that person sinned in that way, then maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I'm not as holy as I thought I was. If, If that thing needs to be dealt with at this level, then I'm in trouble too. And when that just gets covered up, you leave a whole bunch of people without the opportunity to have to face some of the reality of their own sin because you're not using these practical ways of of teaching them.
0: And you reject the very nature of who God is. Like it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 13, therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. God is saying his church is unleavened. And so when the church says we can add leaven in, God's going, well, why do you think you're at church then? Because you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world." But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. When you don't put away from yourselves the evil person, you're saying this is acceptable to God. This is who God is. And that's a really dangerous thing to to blaspheme God by saying God is a God who doesn't expect holiness. God is a God who has a church that doesn't expect holiness because God is a holy God and his people are a holy people.
1: And and it says they are a holy people. They are unleavened. And that's – there's a lot of hope in that. There's there's reasons hope and to fear. fear. <laughs> yeah, but 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 there's hope in it and and I want to you know, look all the way to the end of time as as far as we know it. It ends with this wedding between Christ and the church and the the bride the the heavenly Jerusalem comes all robed in white made pure. And that's the way things end. And you think about what are the mechanics of that? What are the mechanics by which God is making his bride pure? And Church discipline is one of those. Preaching the word is one of those. You know, there's all of these things that sanctify along the way. But at the end, he's going to do it. It's going to be pure. He's not going to tolerate these kinds of things. That's the kind of God that we serve. So we can either be part of that project. Mm -hmm. and, And we know what those clean clothes are because it says it right there in the verse. It says that those robes are the righteous acts of the saints. So it's all of those things that the church is supposed to be doing as it's turning away from the things that it's not supposed to be doing. That's what's going to happen at the end. So that's why I say there's reason to hope because it's really God who's behind it and God's going to make it happen. Now, if you're fighting against that, if you're rebelling, if you're thinking let's cover up sin, let's not deal with sin that we need to, let's this spot's okay. You know, I'm going to just fold it over a little bit and keep it in, in the crease. Or if, you go,
0: out. or if you go, oh, God is merciful, so we don't need to deal with sin. That's, like, so contrary to what mercy looks like. God is merciful, he deals with sin. The church needs to be merciful, it needs to deal with sin.
2: We've touched on this already in some ways, but, I mean, there is a part of it where one of the things that church discipline does, and, and this, is, this, is, this really deserves to be just really pushed on. The reason why the scandals in the Catholic Church are so offensive is because the Catholic Church says the Pope has the power to put the Holy Spirit of God upon someone. He's saying we have supernatural power. And then you have these scandals going on in the church, and you're going, if you have the ability to dispense supernatural power, why is this going on? I mean, th- I mean th- you're not just like a company that says we send our people to excellent training. No, you're saying you have power from God to overcome sin, and your people are out here
1: doing these things. That's the reason why sin is so scandalous in the church. And, and you don't need to blame the Catholics for that, because we're pretty good as evangelicals with that. Because here's, here's the way we do it. We say the Holy Spirit comes upon somebody. The Holy Spirit comes and lives on somebody, but the Holy Spirit doesn't actually make that person holy. Right. That's what I'm getting to, is we look at the Catholic Church and we go, that is shameful. But the reason we look at them differently
2: is because we don't believe God actually has any power. We don't actually believe the Holy Spirit actually does anything and causes anything in the world. We believe that God is powerless. And so we're like more offended by the Catholic Church because of their things than we are by the sin in the church. But we're supposed to be the true people of God. The true people of God have the Holy Spirit. And what do you believe that means? And if you believe it means God has no power in the world, Scripture does not agree with you.
0: And, I mean, when you think about it, right, the idea of the pope is that he can dispense special grace on a priest to make them have a special anointing by him that makes them holy because he's Christ in the flesh. Right. And, you know, but we've decided that in the evangelical community that God having the Holy Spirit does nothing, that everybody stays exactly the same when they have the Holy Spirit, if they don't have the Holy Spirit. And so even some of the charismatic stuff, where that kickback is, no, God, the Holy Spirit has power. And a lot of times their doctrine of the Holy Spirit, it has serious problems, but it's better than the evangelicals' doctrine of the Holy Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit is meaningless. The Holy Spirit is not God, because God actually affects things, and the Holy Spirit can't do anything. He comes and abides on you and doesn't change you at all. And what the church has to testify to is, that is not God. The Holy Spirit is God, and as he is God, he will change anyone who he abides in. You can't, who can resist his will, it says in Romans 9? No one can resist the will of God. If the Holy Spirit is abiding in you, he will make you holy. He will cleanse you. This is a promise of Scripture.
2: I remember, Paul, I think, a, a, a Paul Washer sermon, I was a snippet of, where he said, if I walked up in front of you today and I told you on the way here, I was struck by a semi, I was standing in the road and a semi hit me, you would go, I don't believe you. And people would say, why? And you would go, because I don't see any sign of a semi truck hitting you. And he goes, but if I told you that the Holy Spirit had come to dwell within me, he goes, you would be fine with seeing no evidence of that whatsoever. And I remember that, and that's always—I mean, and and you can overstate the work of the Holy Spirit. That, you know, when the Holy Spirit comes on someone, it does not make them sinless. It does not make—you know, John, Scripture is very clear on this. They will still sin. There will still be sin that they have to deal with. It
3: doesn't make them perform miracles, guaranteed.
2: Right. It does not make—I mean, and so there's—you can, you can very easily overstate what the Holy Spirit does. But that's not the problem that the church has today. The problem is the church understates massively that the Holy Spirit comes into someone's life and maybe it makes them kind. Maybe it makes them be cheerful sometimes. Maybe. Maybe. And that's about as strong as it gets.
0: And again, the Old Testament is given to us as a warning so that we fear. Because it says in Ezekiel thirty-six, nineteen through 23, so I scattered them, right? This is what God is doing to Judah, Because they refused to cause his name, to show that it had any power. So I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations, wherever they went, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my name, my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations, wherever you went, I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nation shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. This is how you see the power of God. The power of God in the world is demonstrated by his people being hallowed in the sight of the nations. That's how you know God is powerful. So when you have churches that look just like the world around them, it's saying God has no power. And when you refuse to do church discipline, you're saying God is powerless to produce a people that he wants because he desires a holy people.
3: I mean, the next thing that we want to talk about is that God is glorious and that's something that the church should be proclaiming through the world uh, and that, you know, that the church should be, should be part of that. And even the next verses following right along there in Ezekiel, um, talk about that and talk about the new covenant and uh, the church's role in it. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk on my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. So there you have, you know, the, the where he's speaking of uh, the church where uh, Christians have their heart of stone removed and a heart of flesh put in. And then we we are able to fulfill uh, what Israel couldn't do—to be God's people, to glorify God's name through the nations. Um, but instead, the, the church is able to do that. The thing that we the whole most of the Old Testament is about them failing, and the church is supposed to be uh, succeeding.
0: And God changes the hearts of those who are saved, so that they choose to walk in the commandments of God, and not perfectly, because that's where everybody goes. But no, but we're not perfect. Yeah, we're not perfect but we're distinctly different than the world because that's how God's name is declared through the world. And God created his church. He created his people so that his name would be proclaimed throughout the world as being a holy God. And this is what people are supposed to see when they see the church. And I've seen this a lot of times, even you know, 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5 frequently you know, people go, well, you know, this is to save the person. But First Corinthians 5 is actually much more about you are an unleavened lump. So that the people around you see you as different. This is why you don't eat with somebody who's named a brother. It's not just that you don't eat with people who are sinners, you don't eat with people who are named a brother, because then people don't see the holiness of God. They don't see his name isn't declared among the nations. That's why he sent his son. To send his spirit was so that his name would be declared among the nations. And we want to make it all about us rather than making it about God. It is about the greatness of God, the glory of God, the knowledge of God. And this is supposed to be seen visibly by people outside in the church. When the church takes it and accepts sin in it, everybody goes God has no ability to do anything. God is powerless. God is useless. God is, why follow Christianity? How many people say, well, I wouldn't become a Christian because they're all hypocrites? And sometimes that's an excuse, but a lot of times it's just blatantly true. You don't, the church doesn't care about sin and people go, the church doesn't care about sin, but yet they say, I'm supposed to be holy. Why would I care about sin? And so God's name
1: is not declared in the nation's if you if you want to say what does this verse have to do with the practicality of church discipline it's it's right there in just a little bit i will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes so ezekiel's giving you facts about what life in the new covenant are going to be like life in the new covenant has got all of these glorious things i'm going to give you a heart of flesh take away your heart of stone you are going to be alive in ways that people have just not been alive before because when the Holy Spirit comes, things are going to be different. And here's one of those facts. I will put my Holy Spirit on you, and you will walk in my statutes. So this is what we should expect that the Church of God is going to be like. It's going to have these people who are... On this trajectory, like you're saying, we're not expecting perfection here, but we're expecting that when the Holy Spirit comes on somebody that things change, things are different. They start walking in ways that they weren't walking anymore, or that that they weren't walking before. And what church discipline is doing is it's piercing into those cases where you're looking at somebody and saying, hey, this verse doesn't describe you in at least one particular, and you know what, if we probe far enough, does it describe you in any ways? You know, this is There are statues of God that you aren't following, and depending on the severity of those, depending on your reaction when those things are brought to your attention, it escalates through the various levels of church discipline and various public things that have to happen up to all the way excommunication. Which excommunication is, in, in our definition, the way that, that we understand scripture, is really the church looking at somebody and saying, you don't have evidence that you're a Christian, and yet you maintain that you're a Christian. You are denying this verse. It's what the church is saying to that person. You're saying that the Holy Spirit's on you, and yet you're not walking in those statutes. And this, this verse says that's not true. And 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 therefore, the church has to do something with you.
2: And it's one of those things where when you get, as you get to a point where the church has not dealt with sin, so that you have a church and it's, and it's composed of some who are saved and some who aren't saved, and like I said, church discipline starts very early. It starts in your discussions. It starts in your and so the people who are saved are saying, I want to follow the statutes of God. And the people who aren't saved are going, Whoa, 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 slow down. Because they look and they go, I can't do this. I'm a slave to sin. They recognize the slavery to sin in their life. And they're going, if you push on this, I'm not, I'm not able to deal with this. And there may be t- periods of times where they're questioning, Am I saved? And there might be a point where they know I'm not saved, but they don't. They don't want to say, I'm not saved. And and so these thi- I mean, so there's part of it where church discipline is these things are going on in the church because the church has allowed itself to become defiled.
0: It's really important to understand that a lot of people, when they go to that point, they actually go, well, this is indicating that I'm not saved. But that cannot possibly be true. Right. So therefore, this process is wrong. It's broken. It's evil. Right. And- Who could
2: be saved? Who could be saved if you have to do this?
0: Right. But what we also have to remember is this is what this is the nature of, of what we should expect, right? This is the pharisees killing Jesus. Right. It's not those who didn't profess the name of God that killed Jesus. It's those who profess the name of God that killed Jesus. You look at the reformation. It's not those who, you know, that that burnt people at the stake during the Reformation, during the English Reformation. It's not those who weren't saying they were Christians. It was those who were saying they were Christians. The Spanish Inquisition, it was those who were saying they were Christians. This is a repeated idea throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, right? It's Paul going, I am a child of God. That's why I'm putting these people to death. And we should expect that to continue now, which means... Yeah, we should expect when you do discipline for people to get angry about it and go, no, I know I'm saved. How dare you suggest such a thing? And their response is to be angry at those people who are actually saying God is holy. But that's also actually how God is separated from the world in people's view. Right now, God is, you know, the vast majority of people in the United States look at God as this, this comfort, right? You come up with this myth that you are comforted by. Because nobody sees the holiness in the church. And I say nobody, and I recognize that some people do. But it's very rare for people to see holiness in the church. So we have a God that the government doesn't fear, a God that the church doesn't fear. We have a God that everybody goes, this, this God's a kindly old uncle, maybe. Maybe a kindly grandfather. He's just an old guy that doesn't really care about anything. He's Santa Claus. He's Granted, Santa Claus. He's Santa Claus, Sure. And that's Santa Claus is evil. By the way, <laughs> I'll throw that in there. We did an episode on that. <laughs> but when you have a god like that, you can only expect one thing to happen in the church, and that's for the church to be tossed to and fro by the world. When all your when your your god is is Santa Claus, Santa Claus is always nice. Maybe he'll just give you coal instead of an orange, but he's, he's always gonna nice. He's not going to send you to hell. And the church says, oh, yeah, he'll send you to hell. Sometimes a lot of churches don't, even though Christ talked more about hell than he did about heaven. But yet we don't, we don't go, no, this is who God is. God is not like some kindly guy, old senile god that you can manipulate. And that's where the church has left God, and it's, it's really declaring a name of God that is very different. Than who God is, and that's who, God, that's who the church in America is declaring to the society, the American society, this is who God is because we want to discipline.
2: When we talk about the power of God and we talk about what God is doing and that God has sent his spirit into the world, that God is holy, that he sent his Holy Spirit into the world, and that he sent his Holy Spirit into the world so that his name will be declared, it takes you to a verse like Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And there's just the church does not believe this today. The church does not believe that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Or if they do, they have shrunk the knowledge of the glory of the Lord to something that is so small and insignificant that it makes no change in the world. But if if God if the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is in the—if is, is, the earth is filled with that, the world will be a different place.
0: And people reject the idea— is why, how they make God small so that they can, oh yeah, God will be glorified. Be his, the gospel will be preached everywhere. As opposed to saying the glory of God is, he is holy. He is holy. He is holy. That's the glory of God, is that he is not like this world. He is not like anybody in this world. He is not corrupted by sin. He is not impacted by sin. He is holy. But the church doesn't want to talk about that. They want to go, he's kindly. He's love, and then mystifying love from a, not a biblical love, but a but an emotional high type love, instead of going, no, God is actually love, he is actually holy, He is actually delivering from sin, which is what love is
2: and the other thing that one of the things that God says is his glory is that he will show mercy to whom he will show mercy. God is merciful, but yet if you don't
0: say that his mercy is not just to forgive people their sin, but to deliver them from their sin, to give them the Holy Spirit, which will cause them to walk in his statutes. If you shrink his mercy down, that his mercy is somebody who's closing his eyes to justice. Right. Right, the murderer who the judge goes, you can just leave. I don't care if you go murder somebody. I'm merciful. That's not merciful. That's participating in murder. That's not what God does. God is merciful. He doesn't only says, I'll forgive that murderer from the sin of murder, but I will also change him so he is no longer a murderer, so it can be just for me to release him. Because if he did it without causing you to walk in his statues, all he's doing is helping you murder people. That's not a good God. That's not a kind God. That's not the God of Scripture.
2: If God could close his eyes to sin, then there was no reason for Jesus Christ to die. God could close his eyes to sin, then the gospel doesn't make any sense. And Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, which means he's—and he can't—I mean, the last enemy that will be defeated is death. And we—I mean, and there is a a, just—there's this logical aspect to it. Sin—death came into the world by sin. If you're going to end death, you have to end sin.
0: And not just ignore it, not just forgive it, but actually—
2: deal with. And it. so and this is the mercy of God that he came to destroy the works of the devil. He didn't just say I'm going to come and deal with things in this in this on paper. I'm going to forgive your sins on paper, but I'm going to leave them rampant in the world. I'm going to let sin just barrel forth and do what it does because it destroys everything. God is merciful. It is death,
0: right? Sin is death.
2: I mean, and, and one of the ways that he shows his mercy is through, is through restoration. Like we said at the beginning, the, the only point of church discipline is not restoration. But he does, but restoration is something that God does. It is something that God accomplishes. In Matthew eighteen ten through 15, it says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. And so, I mean, you can see here that, I mean, Jesus, God desires there, not just even God desires, God is going to restore all those who are his. God is not going to lose any sheep that is his. God is going to restore those who have fallen away. And so... You don't have to worry about, is God going to restore those who are his? You don't have to worry, if I go and confront this person in his sin, will I cause him to fall away in a way that God can't go and restore him? You can't do that. It is impossible. And so your job and your—you may—if you don't care about your brother, you may not be one of his sheep. If you have no care and concern for the things that God has commanded you, you may not be one of his but you cannot make your brother, who is God's, fall away from God. And so there is this part of it where, I mean, because of God's mercy, we can have great confidence. We can have great confidence in going and doing the things he has called us to do without fear of will we will we subvert the work of God? Will we cause something to happen that is beyond the control of God? For there's nothing that's beyond that control. And I do think
0: there's a lot of people who have— embrace the Calvinistic soteriology, the idea of how you're saved, that it's God who chooses. But then they turn around in their church discipline practices. They're still acting like Arminians because Arminians are going, well, you can lose your salvation. You can choose to turn away. And God says, no, go ahead and push. Don't worry about it. You won't lose those who are are his, right? It talks about that in Hebrews 6, about pour out the water of the word, preach the hard things, because those who are his will lap it up, and those who aren't will grow out, and you'll see that they're thorns and briars. You will tell the difference. And people want to go, well, we don't want to push on them, because maybe it will drive them away. That's not what drives them away. It drives away sin, not the person, if if the person's saved. And, and
3: it's not that it's like, well, if in doubt excommunicate, you know, it's, it's right. you know, there probably aren't too many places that do that. There might be some, um, but it's that you're, act, you're being just about it and you're not worrying about the consequences of following God's commandments.
0: Right. Yes, definitely. You don't just go, I'm going to be harsher than God just because I'm going to show how much I love God. No, loving God is to obey his commandments.
1: You were talking about case law earlier. I mean, and even this verse, this is case law. This is talking about a particular circumstance, so extrapolate from it. One of the things that happens is really the, the way that this happens is you think that your brother is sinned against you. You are under the perception that your brother has sinned against you. And this is saying, if that's what you feel like, you need to go talk to your brother. And you know what happens in some of those cases is you find out that either, hey, you just misunderstood something, brother didn't really sin against you, or... You're the one who's in sin, and you're the one who's been misperceiving things, and it's an opportunity for you to be disciplined and for you to be conformed and for you to be brought back by going through this process. It's you know, Oftentimes you, you, you find it works the, the opposite way than you think it is.
0: It's important to recognize that it's, it's God who shows mercy, not man. We obey, and we show mercy through obedience but it's God is the one that shows mercy. And he shows mercy through his church obeying, but it's God's mercy and not man's mercy. So often I see in church discipline that people go, oh, we're just going to forgive that. We're just going to ignore it. Well, that's man's mercy, which is useless, and it's not God's mercy. It's really important to recognize that God's the one that shows mercy. And God's mercy is is very strange, right? Like from a human perspective, like in 1 Corinthians 5. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because it's not the church that shows mercy. It's God who shows mercy. You are supposed to put them out of the protection of the church in the appropriate circumstances, when it's just, all those things. You are to put them out of the church because God uses Satan to cause them to to see their sin, where they can't see it inside the church. And so often people go, well, we have to keep him inside the church because if we put him out, he wouldn't hear the gospel and he'd never be saved. I've heard that probably a hundred times from people. And that is their belief that they show mercy. God says, turn them over to Satan. That's how they'll be, you know, so that they may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That it's God shows mercy how he wants to show mercy. Our duty is to obey because that's how we show the mercy of God, not to do what we think is merciful. God turns them over to Satan so that their flesh is destroyed, they, they reap the, the rewards of sin, and they go, I need a Savior, so that they're saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. It doesn't mean they'll always be saved, but you put them out so they are saved, because as long as you hide the fact that they're—as long as the church isn't speaking to them and saying, we have no reason to believe you're a believer— They will keep lying to themselves and say, I know I'm a believer. Even when you put them out, most of the time they keep going, but I'm a believer. I'm a believer. Even though you go, but this is what scripture says. This is how you violate the law of God. This is how it shows the Holy Spirit's not working in you. They still say, but I'm a believer. The only way that they'll come to the conclusion that they're not is to put them out and let Satan destroy their flesh, reap the rewards of the flesh. And that's how God sometimes saves people.
1: I mean, putting him in the church doesn't help. Put this verse up alongside the the parable of the prodigal son, which nobody has a problem with. I mean, that's such a wonderful story of redemption. But it's it's this pattern. <laughs> right. It's somebody has to go to the end of the consequences of their sin and they have to be eating the pig slop to realize, oh, things are better in the house of my father. Let me go back there and appeal to see if maybe he'll let me back in. Let me let me feel the weight, the crushing weight of sin. Let me, let me go for the destruction of my flesh. You know, when when it's when all of the pleasures of sin are run out, and all I'm left with is the pigs are eating better than I am, then that person has a I, chance to be saved. If that's what it takes to open their eyes. And hey, that guy in the prodigal son story, he could have been saved at any other point along the way. If there's at any point along the way he could have stopped his sin. But sometimes God says, you know what they really need destruction of their flesh.
0: And we all know how many people that come to faith, especially later in life, they come to faith usually because they're at the bottom. It's not that they're at the top, they're at the bottom. And yet we have somebody inside the church and we go, well, keeping them comfortable will bring them to faith when they see the comfort of God. No, they they need to see their need for a Savior. They don't need the comfort of God. They need to see how they're at odds with God.
1: I mean, one of the things that you've been talking about that— It's helpful for me to think about mercy and forgiveness in in particular kinds of ways because when you talk about forgiveness, when you say you want to forgive somebody's sins or say forgive their debt because that's a little more obvious, what you're not doing is saying the debt just goes away. When you forgive a debt, it's not like the debt just disappears. It's the penalty or the cost of that debt has shifted. If somebody owes me money, then really it's on their bank account that, that they're $10 in the red that that belongs to me. And if I say, you know what, I'm going to forgive that, what I've done is I've just absorbed that. It's off their books, and it's now on my books. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about God forgiving sin— God does forgive sin. He actually does forgive sin. But what that means is it's not that the effects and cost of sin disappears. It means that God took it and he shifted it somewhere else. This is what we mean when we talk about the substitutionary atonement of the death of Jesus Christ. Is is Forgiveness of sin is not just making it go away, saying, oh, no, it doesn't matter, it didn't happen. No, it matters. All the scales balance with God. But they had to go somewhere. They needed, they needed something else other than crushing you in hell, if God's going to forgive, it can't just disappear into the ether, because that's not the way that God works. That's not the world that he created. It's contrary to his nature. Everything balances with God.
0: So when we think about church discipline, we need to go back to what we said at the beginning, is the focus has to be on God. It has to be saying that God is to be feared, that he is holy, that his purpose is to have his name declared throughout the earth, that he's the God that's powerful that he's the God that that is merciful, that he shows mercy to whom he will show mercy, and that it's the work of God that's to be reflected into the church for the benefit of man. Because we start with the love of God, and that produces the love of man. And we should recognize just how important that is in terms of the church, because when, when Christ talks about the church first with Peter in Matthew 16, 16 through 19, it says, Simon Peter answered and said, "'You are the Christ, the Son of the living God.'" Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. When Christ says that to Peter... He is tying the idea that it will defeat the gates of hell. He's tying that with church discipline. He's tying it with building his church. He's saying, here's something I want you to know, that I will speak through the church. I will bind those things that you bind, and I will loose those things that you loose. And you can talk about the Greek, that the that the words are such that that the church is revealing what God already decided. But what's important to recognize is this is how he builds his church. And when you reject discipline— what you end up is having a church that can't defeat the gates of hell. We see this in our day and age. We have a church that's incredibly weak in the world. We should recognize just how tied this is to discipline. If you can't make a holy people inside your gates, you will not affect the people outside. Thanks for joining us. This
2: has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, You can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here
1: or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.